Hey, good morning. Glad to have you with us. Uh, it is uh, 10.07. Coming up at 10.35, uh, we're going to have Ron Calzone, uh, MoFirst.org, what the Republicans in the State House here in Missouri didn't learn from the Republicans in Washington, D.C., uh, while they were uh, going after the Speaker's position. Uh, anyway, uh, in, we're going to kick this segment of the program. Oh, and also, I got a Stacey Abrams update that you'll find fascinating. Has she ever won a race, Brian? Uh, I don't Not think that so. I'm aware of, no. Nope. No. Uh, but we'll tell you what she's planning and where she stands financially. In the meantime, we kick off this segment of the program with David Stokes. He is Director of Municipal Policy at the Show Me Institute. Uh, on the future of short-term rentals like Airbnb and Verbo in uh, Lake of the Ozark. What's going on down there, Dave? Hi, Gary. Good morning. Great to be on the air with you, sir. Thank you. Glad to have you with us. So what you had is the city of Lake Ozark, not the whole region, but the city of Lake Ozark, they just Tuesday night passed an ordinance repealing their limits on short-term rentals in, in residentially zoned parts of, of the area. They, they were the only community in the greater Lake of the Ozarks region that had a limit on short-term rentals, rentals, and they repealed it. There was, a lot of, there was a lot of debate, a lot of consternation, a lot of support for it, but also a lot of opposition to it. So it's going to be really interesting to see what, what comes from it. In, in such a tourist area, like Lake Ozark and that whole region, it certainly seems peculiar to have this an outright ban on it. And I'm not unsympathetic to concerns of of parties and 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 that for full time residents. But I think I'd rather I, I support the idea of getting rid of just an abject ban and let's deal with the problems as they arise through through police actions or fines for landlords if parties continue, but just an outright ban, I think, is way too far. It's a real interesting decision here in Lake Ozark. So instead of stopping people from renting, just say, you know, if they're making a lot of noise, we call the police and, and uh, issue a citation. Yeah, I think that's a much better way to do it. Deal, deal with the problems when they arise, uh, and, and don't just ban it outright for a lot of people who certainly in an area, a lot of people everywhere, people like Airbnb and VRBO, and I think people should have a right to, to rent out their properties short term. Uh, but in a place like, o like Lake Ozark, it makes even less sense to just outright ban it. So look, if HOAs, the often maligned HOAs, want to deal with this through a voluntary basis through a neighborhood and a community, that's a separate matter. But through the, the heavy hand of government through zoning regulations, I think, I think these outright bans on Airbnb and VRBO and other short-term rental uses, I think those are way, way too far. It doesn't mean I don't support any limit at all. It certainly doesn't mean I don't support... Uh, you know, if you're renting it out every day or frequently, it probably should be taxed like more of a commercial property uh, than than just a residential unit being being rented out occasionally. There's there's parts there's there's good sides to both of it, but these outright bans I think are way too far. What is the uh, the advantage to the community if this is allowed to happen? I mean, does it, does everybody profit? Does the does it just increase tourism? Well, I. Look, as somebody with, with three kids, you know, I've certainly experienced when we travel that there's a lot of hotels that 
won't allow more than four people into a room at a time. So if you've got a big family, you know, that hotel is going to want to force you to get two rooms, three rooms, whatever. So people like the, the rental of a home or a larger condo where a family can stay together for like a youth sports tournament or just going to the lake for any of the many, many wonderful reasons. People love Lake of the Ozarks. So hotel, look, hotels are, hotels are great, but they're not right for every instance. And these VRBO or Airbnb short-term rental options are really popular with lots of people. They're also a way that homeowners can take their large investment in their property and make a little money off of, off of it. And again, I've got a, I've got a blog post up at showmeinstitute.org about this. I do see both sides of the issue and I certainly understand a full-term resident might be concerned about being, being located next to a place that's being rented out for a bachelor or bachelorette party every weekend but in those instances let let the problem arise and then let the city and the police or regulate regulators deal with that as opposed to this outright ban i i think that's harmful and the more people you get coming into the lake of the ozarks to use these things the more options you provide you're going to get more people and, and that's what really grows the economy for everyone i'm curious did the hotel motel trade the hospitality industry did they have a, a say in this did they uh, get it? Get did they get active in this? I don't know as specific to Lake Ozark itself, but generally speaking, because this debate is happening around the country. Yes, I mean the hotel industry is is certainly concerned about this, and there I certainly agree with them on the tax part. Meaning, I don't know. Well, I don't necessarily think that somebody rents out their home once or twice a year needs to be paying commercial property taxes or collecting hotel taxes that hotels are doing. Certainly people who are renting out their, their condo or their home frequently, I think that there should be a level playing field. And if there's hotel taxes, they should be collecting them too for the city or the, the county. I, the hotel industry, in my opinion, is right about that concern. I, I would argue the other side of the coin needs to be looked at. Are we overtaxing hotels trying to burden uh, uh, travelers who come through town to pay for things that you know our people don't want to pay for uh, Ab- I'll give a perfect example absolutely yeah you know, they they passed this hotel tax in Colombia to help cover the cost of the airport we didn't want to pay for it so anybody who stops by or goes to a game comes in from out of town we'll make them pay for it in, in St. Charles, Missouri, Gary, this is being debated right now on the, near St. Louis. They, uh, 15 years or so ago, they passed a hotel tax to pay for a convention center. And the convention center bonds are now paid off. So there's a debate going on as to what they should spend the hotel tax money on now. But nobody seems to be suggesting getting rid of the hotel tax now that, now that its primary purpose is gone. The, ho- the bonds are paid. Perhaps they need to consider reducing it or eliminating it. And certainly, if you're expanding that hotel tax to Airbnb and VRBOs and collecting a lot more money now, I think reducing it for everybody is something cities and counties should truly consider. Yeah, so if I'm not spending as much on the hotel room, I can take the kids out for a, a you know a snack somewhere, ice cream, or we can go to dinner or uh, something else. We'll spend money in the community. Uh, it, 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 Absolutely, that's how, that's how economic unplanned economic activity happens like that, and that's how our our free market system provides the the level of life that 
the overwhelming majority of Americans have. It wasn't through government planning. It was for hard work and investment and entrepreneurialism and all that. Couldn't agree with you more. All right, so if I want to read uh, your position on this, I can go to the Show Me Institute website? Showmeinstitute.org. Got a blog post up. And aside from, aside from this issue of short-term rentals, really talking a lot about the land bank issue here, there's a bill, House Bill 587, to take land banks, which currently exist in St. Louis and Kansas City, which allow the city to proactively acquire property from people. Uh, it's a terrible, terrible policy. Uh, I like to say terum ripum vinci. Land banks must be defeated. This is my Cato the Elder Carthage must be destroyed statement that I'm going to say over and over for this legislative session. Tara Ripham Vici. What is a land bank exactly? How do I get, how does the city acquire the land? A land bank is sort of a land trust on steroids. A land, every county all right, all right, I'll has a what, land I'll tell you what, tell you what, tell you what. Dave, uh, normally I don't do this, but you, you've started a whole new topic. Uh, so I'm going to put you on hold if you can. We'll do a quick commercial break. It's a short, uh, shortest break of the hour. Then you come back and explain this. Fantastic. I'd love to. Thank All you, right. Gary. David Stokes is with us. He is the director of municipal policy at the Show Me Institute Land Banks in Kansas City and St. Louis. What? Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org, coming up at about uh, 10 minutes. He, he, well, actually at about uh, 1035, uh, right after the news. And we will... Uh, it, Chat about the uh, the members of the House here in, in uh, Missouri, down in Jeff, because apparently they did not learn the lesson that the uh, 21 brave Republicans in Washington, D.C. was teaching them. But we're uh, going to uh, uncharacteristically keep uh, the show me institute on uh, a little longer uh, than normal. And we're doing that because Dave Stokes brought up this land bank deal. So the cities of uh, Kansas and St. Louis have a land bank. How do they get land? Well, they get it oftentimes through the standard way that any county land trust does, which is a property doesn't pay its taxes for three years, and then it becomes owned by the, the county. Oh, so, so they don't pay their well, rent. Right. Their, their property tax base rent, right. So that's the, how they get most of the property. But they're also authorized to go out and acquire property in certain instances, although that's, that's not the, the bulk of it. The real problem is that with a county land trust, if somebody goes to and buys it, the county has to sell it to them. There's not a lot of choice in it. But with land banks, you, you sort of authorize the city of St. Louis and the city of Kansas City to act like real estate agents with the property they own. So you find that they, they have all this land, they may try to acquire some other property that goes with it, and they act like they're going to pitch it to a developer for a, a big project, which hardly ever happens. So what they end up doing is rejecting offers from neighbors who just want to maybe buy the neighboring property, have a bigger yard. It's a classic example of they're shooting for the moon, and they fail in that. So they end up keeping this property off the tax rolls for years or decades because they won't just sell it to the people who next door who want to buy it, even though that would put it back on the tax rolls. So these places in St. Louis and Kansas City have totally failed. Not surprisingly, it leads to a lot of corruption and favoritism as politically connected people get treated differently. Three aldermen in the city of St. Louis just went to jail for bribery charges. Uh, this was only in the past month or two. And some of these bribery charges related to the land bank. In Kansas City, the Kansas City Star did a big investigation report a year and a half ago 
documenting all the favoritism and cronyism that is in the Kansas City Land Bank. Yet now, a state rep from Springfield uh, wants to bring land banks to the rest of the state. This is insane. Uh, they say in government, nothing succeeds like failure. <laughs> well, then this couldn't be more true. Like the St. Louis and Kansas City land banks have been total failures. Corruption, favoritism, cronyism. Why the rest of the state would want this is beyond me. So, Tara Ripham Vici, land banks must be defeated this year in the legislature, and I hope they never come back. This is a, a terrible idea that people throughout the state of Missouri should be concerned about. Who's the legislator in Springfield that's pushing for this? Representative Owen, uh, a Republican, a Republican from, from Spring, Springfield, Representative Owen. I think it's Bill Owen, uh, but definitely Representative Owen. The bill is... HB 587, just a terrible, terrible bill, and the last thing the state of Missouri needs right now. Well, people down in Springfield, you've got your marching orders. Tell them to pull the bill. Uh, everybody else, call your legislator and tell them not to vote for this bill. It's a terrible idea, and I agree. Why, I, we, why we would want government to have more authority to own private property under the guise that it will do a better job of selling it and marketing it and getting it back to the private sector. That's the theory behind land banks. It hasn't worked that way in St. Louis and Kansas City. Why Springfield, St. Joe has one too, but it's very new and very small, so uh, it hasn't had any successes, but I haven't we haven't documented the failures yet either. Why Springfield would want one is beyond me. Why anyone in the state would want this, and if you want to respect private property rights as opposed to government owning more land, then this bill has got to be defeated. All right. I like the way you think, Mr. Stokes. Well, we like the way you think, Mr. Nolan. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. Thank you, Gary. All information on all these subjects, showmeinstitute.org. All right, David. Thank you. Glad to have you on. David Stokes, uh, Director of Municipal uh, Policy at the Show Me Institute. Yeah, I, the whole idea, and I've talked about this before, real estate. I don't know. I don't know how we ever agreed that we would let the government rent us the property that we've already bought. I mean, it doesn't make sense. The government likes it because it's it's such a dependable source of revenue, but. The government should have a no more dependable source of revenue than you do. You know, if the economy goes south, you change how you live. You cut back on your spending. You, you, you buy less expensive things. I mean, we're all going through this right now with all this inflation. But the government doesn't think it should have to. So you'll make all kinds of extra sacrifices to pay your your rent to the county uh, with the the uh, real estate tax you'll go without so that they don't have to make any compromises in the way they work i don't want them to have a dependable source of revenue i want their source of revenue at the government to be as you know sketchy as it is for the rest of us and and it, you know somebody's paid off their house or they've you know they paid their mortgage and they didn't have enough money for the for the real estate tax and uh, the state comes in or the city comes in in, in a county and, and swoops it up no no if you own it you own it i think that should be our slogan brian if you own it you own it 
not the county, not the city. You own it. And that's how they're apparently getting this real estate. Uh, didn't pay your taxes? Didn't pay taxes on the property? Didn't pay your rent on the property? We're going to take it. All right. Um, Ron Calzone on uh, the lesson the Republicans in the State House didn't learn. But uh, there is a, a piece that is up at uh, UncoverDC.com. And it is about Stacey Abrams, who is apparently, in spite of the fact she's not won a race, going to run again. And I think I know the motive. She allegedly, when she started running for governor, was worth $109,000. I mean, this girl had some, <clears throat> some debt. Uh, she owed uh, the IRS... Uh, $170,000 uh, in credit card bills. Uh, she, she was worth hundred and ten grand. Today, having run for office twice and lost, she's worth over $3 million. $3.17 million. Uh, just lucky, I guess. Huh. Just lucky. $54,000 <laughs> to the IRS. Uh, and on top of that, $170,000... In credit card, how do you make payments on one hundred and seventy thousand dollars in credit card? <laughs> it's incredible. That is phenomenal. Damn, that's a that's a an, a nine hundred credit score and uh, a whole bunch of credit cards. Whew. Anyway, uh, so now she's worth over three million dollars, and uh, she's thinking of running for office again. Aren't you glad you're not in Georgia? Because I could not put up with her. That is a remarkable amount of profit to have made. Unbelievable. Oh, and the uh, the second location for the classified documents, we know what that is now. Uh, President Biden came out, and uh, apparently they found these other top-secret documents in his... In his... I can hardly say this. In his garage. Oh, that's a good thing. I, well, I thought maybe they were in a location that weren't, you know, wasn't secured, that kind of no, thing. No, no, no. It was near his Corvette. Oh, good, uh, good. In, a, in a locked garage. That's fantastic. Uh, Usually, and, you, know, you know, if I want to protect cash, for example, I just put yeah. it in my garage and yeah. it's safe in there. That's that's where I keep Glenn, uh, Gwen's jewelry. Yes. Uh, uh -huh. The expensive stuff, we leave it out in the garage where I it's safe. I was kind of worried till I heard that. Your your word what that your your that money? the documents weren't secured. Oh yeah, no, they were safe, Brian. Good, good, absolutely safe. No, no irresponsible behavior on his part. No, no, of course not. Call me irresponsible. irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> is that not the perfect song for him? It is unreliable. Oh boy! All right, uh, what was that lesson? Well, I think we all know, but we'll chat about it with. Uh, Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org. Then Dave Rowland is going to be on board. Dave has got several cases, uh, many of them uh, from right here uh, in town, uh, or not in town, but in, in the state of Missouri. Uh, an update on Katie Gatewood's impeachment case. He argued that be, uh, before the uh, Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday. Um, lots of Second Amendment-related news. We'll chat about that. Oh, and I narrowed down a Gary on Guns guest, by the way, for Saturday. John Lott will be with us then. 
I just threw that out there, non sequitur. Gary Nolan Zimmer. This right is the it. Gary Nolan Show. Got an EV? Winter is here. What will you lose because of the cold weather? We'll tell you. We'll do that a little later on this hour. In the meantime, Ron Calzone is with us. Calzone. Is in the building. Well, he's not really, but he's on with us. And uh, his uh, his uh, organization is MoFirst.org. Go there to find out what's going on in the Capitol. And apparently what's going on in the Capitol is not only is business as usual, it's worse. Ron, welcome. Glad to have you on the program. Uh, what are these new rules they voted on? Well, the, the new rules further consolidate power and particularly ensconce that power in the Speaker of the House, as if he doesn't already have enough power. And so the Missouri House of Representatives did exactly what uh, at least Republicans all over the country are admiring those 20, or was it 21, in Washington, D.C. for doing. Just the opposite of what they're doing. Rather than saying we need to do what the founders said we had to do, and that is, is make sure we have distributed power, and that it wasn't concentrated in the hands of too few people, uh, they said, let's give the speaker more power. And I know you good reason. I but, know you complained about the way it was run before, uh, but that they made it worse is kind of astounding. Uh, tell me what the changes were. It is astounding. And so, you know, effectively, the Speaker of the House controls, can stop any legislation that he wants because he gets to decide whether... Well, actually not whether, but when a bill gets assigned to a committee. And so uh, the Constitution says every bill has to get assigned or referred to a committee, uh, but it doesn't say when. And so a whole lot of the bills, maybe even most of the bills, literally get assigned to a committee on the last day of session when when it's, there's absolutely no way uh, the bill could advance. Uh, but there's so many other ways that the Speaker controls the flow of of the, of the process. On the front end... He gets to pick committees. He gets to uh, decide who sits on what committee and who chairs what committee. And and then he gets to decide, as I said, when bills get assigned to those committees. Uh, effectively, he gets to decide what happens in those committees with the bills. Not He can't specifically, absolutely control what the committees do with the bills. But if he doesn't like what's happening to the bills if it's the cause of this or that member of the committee, he has the power to remove them and replace them with somebody that will do his will. And and it, once that committee does something with the bill, uh, he can twist the arm of, this, of the chairman of the committee to do what he wants to, either report it out uh, at all or when he wants it reported out of the committee to go on to the next level. Uh, and, if the, and if the committee chair doesn't do that, then he can pull that committee chair and, and install one that does do what he wants him to do. And so several years ago, uh, a second-level committee was established. It's called the Rules Committee. And that's another uh, committee full of hand-picked speaker uh, members. And that's another place where the speaker has had control over the bill, whether the bill advances through that committee and how long it takes to advance to that committee if he just wants to, to delay. Uh, well, then they decided that we need two Rules Committees. And so now the the but the but with the two rules committee, at least there was an automatic referral. So when it came out of the first level committee, it automatically went to a specific second level committee. And and now the speaker is going to have the power 
uh, well, they made three of those rules committees, and the Speaker's going to have the power to decide uh, which of those three committees it goes to. And and he's been given uh, some extra time to delay. So what's typically happened, and this I know this is much in the weeds for a lot of your listeners, but typically what's happened in the past is the first half of session or so, the Speaker had most of the power. But then once a bill gets through the committee process and it goes on the House calendar, the floor leader, who's the person with the second most power, could control the flow of legislation to the floor. Well, that meant that the floor leader had most of the power towards the latter part of the session. Well, these new rules are going to give the speaker power not just early in the session, but later in the session because he's got these three rules committees and he gets to control the flow of the legislation to those three rules committees. So it, it's... It is a little in the weeds, but this is kind of the bottom line that your listeners need to understand. They are not truly being represented because the speaker and the floor leader have 95% of the power, one way or the other, in the House of Representatives. That means that your representative doesn't have his one 163rd of the power. He doesn't have equal say. And if he's a Democrat or she's a Democrat, then it's even less. So that makes the speaker uh, as powerful as the governor. You know, I, I actually was asked that at the committee hearing for this bill uh, by a representative. The representative asked me, who do you think, you know, uh, how much power does the speaker have relative to the, the rest of the power in the state? And I said, well, I think arguably he's the second most powerful person in the state and and i was asked what do you mean arguably well he might actually have more power than the governor in some senses so yeah nothing gets past him no and the thing that's incredible is is that we've got 163 well if we take the speaker and the floor leader out of the picture we've got 161 members of the house of representatives that are supposed to be representing you that every two years vote to cede their power to these two men. And why do they do it? It's because they hope that these two men will throw them some crumbs. They'll give them the appointment to a committee that they want, or they'll give them a committee chairmanship, you know, or they're afraid to be the one that stands out and says, no, this is stupid, we're not going to do this anymore, uh, and, and that they'll get punished somehow, because the Speaker can literally throw them out of an office, you know, not out of their their office in the House of Representatives, but I've been mean, talking about their physical office at the building. They can give them a broom closet for an office. And uh, there, besides the Democrats, who naturally are going to bristle against the you know two Republicans having this much power, uh, there was really only one Republican who was willing to do anything on the House floor yesterday as they passed this this rules change, uh, anything on the House floor to push back at this concept of ensconce power. And, and amazingly enough, uh, actually, that's, a, that, that's more of a pun than you might think. You'll find out in a minute. This was a freshman. It was a young lady who's a 24-year-old, uh, brand-new representative named Maisie Boyd. That's why I said amazingly. Uh, but she was the only one that was willing to say, hey, you know, we need to look at these rules and, and decide whether it's appropriate. In her case, she offered an amendment that that said that the speaker couldn't unilaterally take a member off of certain committees, that, it, that at least you had to get the floor leader to agree. And she didn't get any support from a single Republican. <laughs> you know, I'm just, just curious, that. did the Democrats support her? 
The Democrats did support her in that, yes. But, you, uh, but not, you, a, not a single Republican did. You, do you think she's going to end up with a, a tiny office uh, broom closet? I think that um, they wouldn't dare do that. Because what happened was is, is Representative Boyd stood tall and stood strong as a brand new freshman when none of the experienced legislators there had the guts to stand up. And, and she, she was raised in the esteem of all of her colleagues, whether they'll admit it or not, tremendously. And for her to face reprisal, I think, would be, uh, it would just be beyond the pale. So, you know, sometimes uh, when you're doing the right thing, it's pretty hard for people to politically touch you. And I think that's, that's her safety margin. And there's a, a pile. So this is something else. I, I uh, sent an email to your, your web email platform and yeah. uh, with some information on it. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, is that there were 600 witness forms filled out for the hearing for this bill this week. And a little bit more than 600. And 600 of them said, no, these are terrible rules. Don't do it. Two of them said, yeah, we support the rules change. Wow. They've been getting calls. They've been getting emails. The public has been outraged, the people that are following this kind of thing. And, and they all just walked in lockstep because they're afraid of what the speaker and the floor leader might do. Well, how do we get and, that? And, how do we change that, Ron? I mean, we've talked about this before. How do we change that? How do we give the, uh, the other members of the House, the cojones, to stand up and say, no, we're not doing that. In fact, we're going the other way. I don't know that you can give them the cojones. I think that what you have to do is demand it out of them. And the first step is for each and every voter to understand that the power that they gave to these two men yesterday was not theirs to give. They gave away their constituents' power. You know, if, I, if you're being represented by a Republican... You need to call them up. Now, let me ask you one more thing, Ron. Is there a way to bring up another vote and change the rules again? Well, abso actually, absolutely, because the rules can be changed anywhere in the process. You know, so any time. The, so these rules are ostensibly for the next two years, two legislative sessions. But you can you can uh, offer an amendment to the rules at any time. So what we need so, is to get that young lady to come on this program, that new state representative, have her come up with a plan that takes the power out of the hands of the speaker and the floor leader puts it in the hands of the representatives again. And then we have to tell our listeners to tell their Republican legislators to get the hell on board. And it wasn't theirs to give. Yeah. But we've got to... We've got to get these other legislators to move away from this. This is, you know, we didn't get a whole hell of a lot done last session. Uh, and, and giving these two guys that much, or these two people that much power, it just, it just, it just strikes me as um, too much power and too few hands. What, what blows my mind, Gary, is, is if you look, you know, if you go to the roster of the Missouri House of Representatives and you look at the biographies of, of these people, many of them are accomplished people. These are people that have uh, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes they've done things with their lives. Uh, there's quite a bit of gray hair. If you, stand, if you sit in the gallery and you look down at the heads of hair, you'll see quite a bit of gray hair. 
these are are mature, accomplished people. Largely, there's young people too. But of course, you know, sometimes the young people seem to have more fire in the belly than the old people do. And the idea that they're led around by the nose like they are, and they just accept it, just absolutely blows my mind. You know, maybe I'm just too independent-minded. I don't know, but I just cannot imagine. Uh, spending all of the time they spend that far away from home and be willing being willing to just let you know one or two people set the agenda and they'll spend eight years doing that eight years that they could be spending running their business or enjoying their family or doing whatever it is they want to do and they want to spend all that time in Jeff City and do somebody else's bidding in the hopes that somebody will throw them a crumb and I want to and I want to say this too. You know, we have a brand new speaker. He was the floor leader last year, and there were some problems that we had with him last year. But we have a brand new floor leader, uh, Rep- Representative John Patterson. We don't know how he's going to be. He might be fine. He might be just fine. And it could be that Dean Plocker, the speaker, you know, maybe he'll behave himself better than he did last year. But this argument is not even about those two people. It's about what's right. It's about, and, and the thing to understand is, is that these rules may live on beyond these two men. So it's not about any personality. It's about the system that's broken and it needs to be fixed. And, and the only reason it hasn't been fixed is pe- people think that's the way it's always been. Yeah, and that's the way they thought it was with the House of Representatives at the federal level. All right. Yep. Ron Calzone, MoFirst.org, thank you for being with us. Thank you for your time. All right, buddy. Take care. Uh, we're going to chat with Dave Rowland. He'll be on with us in about 20 minutes. He's got some cases from right here in Missouri that are, I think, pretty fascinating. In the meantime, you got an EV, cold weather, and EVs apparently don't really get along too well. Wait till you see how much juice you lose, because it's cold. That's next. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 1054, and uh, let me just go over a few things here with you uh, so you know what's coming up. Dave Rowland is going to be on board. Uh, He's going to talk about uh, the uh, Katie Gatewood impeachment case. He argued that in front of the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals on Tuesday. Uh, Then uh, some examples of... Uh, MU's campus uh, from MU's campus bring up questions of speech. Um, free speech is a concern on college campuses everywhere. Uh, he's going to bring that up. Uh, lots of Second Amendment related legal news this week. Uh, and uh, there's also a, a piece that I was looking at this morning, and, and he probably has no idea I'm throwing this out at him, but it was uh, the Third Circuit considers whether nonviolent crimes justify the loss of the uh, of second amendment rights so uh you uh i don't know uh, here's an example uh Brian Range pleaded guilty to fraudulently obtaining $2500 in food stamps by misrepresenting his income he returned the money He paid a $100 fine and $288 in court costs, and he served three years of probation. What he didn't know is that uh, it came with a lifelong penalty. He lost his constitutional right to keep and bear arms. You know, if it's a nonviolent crime and you've done restitution, I don't think that should 
because uh, for you to be more vulnerable when you're out on the streets. I just I just think it's wrong. Anyway, uh, we'll uh, we'll kick that around with Dave. I'll throw that out there. Uh, that all happens at about quarter after eleven. Right now, some electric vehicles lose a lot of range in the freezing cold. Gasoline-powered cars do, too. Uh, you can lose 10 15% of range in a gasoline-powered car. Here's the difference. In a gasoline-powered car, I can stop at the local station and in five minutes fill a tank. It, it, it's, so it's not really all that noticeable. If I'm in a battery-powered car and the power runs down, I got to consider spending a lot of time trying to recharge this uh, this vehicle. Uh, and some vehicles are better than others. Uh, the if you buy a Jaguar I-Pace, uh, the range loss in freezing temperatures three percent. That's an estimate. Uh, the Audi e-tron is eight percent. But you know. If you get a, a Tesla Model X, Model Y, Model 3, Model S, you're losing anywhere from 15 to 19 percent. Uh, the Nissan Leaf, when it's freezing out, you lose 21 percent of your battery power. Uh, it gets worse when you get to the domestic models. The Ford Mustang Mach-E, if it gets down to uh, freezing temperatures, you'll lose 30%, it's verified, it's not estimated, that's verified, 30% of your power. And the Chevy Bolt, 32%. The Volkswagen ID didn't do too well either, it's at 30%. Can you imagine, you got your car filled with gas, Brian, uh, and the temperature drops and you lose a third of the tank? I can't imagine. You know, and what if you're down to a third of a tank? Wow. Just another... You know what? That's not the only one. There's another uh, problem that I, uh, I saw today. I, literally, and I just, let me just throw this out. Head of the National Transportation Safety Board expressed concern Wednesday about the safety risks that heavy electric vehicles pose if they collide with lighter vehicles. Uh, the official Jennifer Homendi raised the issue in a speech in Washington to the Transportation Research Board. She noted by way of example, an electric GMC Hummer weighs 9,000 pounds. With a battery pack, that alone is 2,900 pounds. Roughly the entire weight of a Honda, Honda Civic. Yeah, that won't tear up the roads too bad. No, be fine. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show 